Welcome everyone to another one of our digital Ignatian conversations. Uh, today we are exploring the topic of how can we create a hope-filled future, accompanying a generation of digital natives. Uh, what more timely of a topic uh, for our, our situation right now as we're sheltering in place from home and learning, all of us learning new things about the, the digital uh, realities. This was actually a conversation that we'd had planned in before this time, uh, trying to tie to actually something from the International Jesuits. The International Jesuits came out with a number of different apostolic preferences. One of them is talking about a hope-filled future and accompanying the youth. So we thought we'd kind of combine that topic, the reality of this digital world, uh, with uh, that inspiration, that guidance from the International Jesuits to really think about what it means for there to be a hope-filled future. Excited to have today uh, two extremely qualified uh, presenters on this topic. I, uh, Christian Estran from Loyola High School. Christian, you've seen in some of our other videos, campus minister and theology teacher, and Patrick Furlong, uh, who's the uh, interim uh, director at the Center for Service and Action at Loyola Marymount University. And, um, engaged in many uh, actions of service and also of spirituality over the years. So I'll let them say a little bit about themselves as well as, as we uh, move to begin. So Christian, you say a little bit about who you are and how, what, what you're bringing to this conversation today in terms of your thoughts or expertise about this topic. Sure. Um, I think the easiest one to begin is just by identifying um, where I like what year I was born because it makes a lot of sense in this topic. Um, so I happen to be, uh, depending on which which demographic model you use, I'm either the last year or the second to last year of millennials, um, being born in 1996. So I'm the the super young side of campus ministry, and uh, I'm a Jesuit uh, college grad, um, both of uh, Gonzaga University, and I did some time at the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College. Um, so I've been formed and shaped by Ignatian spirituality, um, but I've also been formed and shaped by the world of social media. Um, you know, I was the kid in high school who was a nonprofit media director for his part-time job. So I've been, you know, kind of thinking about these topics, maybe not necessarily in a faith formation way, but in a, in a, just an involvement way for a really long time, um, at least in the scope of my own personal life. Um, I just find that, that social media technology and all of that um, has a profound has a profound way on the way people think and and in many ways even the way in which we choose to interact um, with another on a, with one another on a social level and so I think those realizations for me have kind of steered me into conversations like this um, and I, I find them to be a really key part of my work with high school students at Loyola uh, each and every day as I try and pick apart and help them discern their own experiences. Excellent, thank you, Christian. Patrick, would you mind saying a little bit about your yourself? Yeah, I mean, I love that introduction from Christian because I was thinking about it and I was going to say the very same thing of, you know, I think starting with the year of birth is actually going to be a really interesting segue into this. And so while Christian is kind of that final millennial, supposedly, you know, before the transition on, I was born in 1983. So depending which demographic models you look at, I'm one of the first two years or so of the millennial generation. So I think we've been jokingly referred to as the elder millennials at different times, which certainly makes you feel old anytime elder can be attached to anything and a title with you. But um, 
you know, I think about it in terms of just my own upbringing and lens coming into the world. I still remember the first time I ever used the internet and being in middle school, my dad worked with a computer company and it was the mid nineties and logging on to send an email to my local zoo. And I remember being in high school and getting chastised by a wonderful professor who ultimately helped me find my way to Loyola Marymount University where I did my undergrad, where he got really annoyed with me and frustrated and said, I hope to God you go to a Jesuit university because I don't know who else will put up with you. And growing up in New Mexico, where we don't really have any Jesuit schools of any variety or anything else, I had no clue what a Jesuit was. And I turned to the internet to figure that out. I was too embarrassed to ask him that question. And so I remember going home that night and Googling the Jesuits and diving kind of deep and going, oh, wow, this might actually be where I want to go. And so I think I just occupy all these different spaces in the digital world from kind of having one foot in and out of it, being able to recognize the joys of sitting with a printed newspaper and still getting a home delivery of a newspaper and yet still also utilizing the internet very quickly and knowing how to kind of sort through different resources, things of that nature. I work with college students, so I always think I'm really lucky to kind of hear from you guys on the trends that are coming my way within the next one to three years. And I think I've definitely seen that digital divide in my own world where I don't feel that old and yet I recognize that I use the digital world very different than most of my college students and I've learned to embrace that and then I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old at home and seeing even just like the first time my kid ever held an iPad how he intuitively knew to swipe is something to kind of work through on its own so really excited to engage in this conversation just because I think it's so so relevant now but also just through that Ignatian lens you know I think a lot of times we look at it as is this good or is this bad and I think it's a very Ignatian thing to say well it's happening so how are we going to respond to it to really do best with it and kind of get that greatest good out of it? No, it's a great uh, uh, reflection. And, and uh, I love how both of you have kind of introduced yourself relative to the generational context. I'm glad that I can represent the Gen X uh, generation here. Um, uh, email really wasn't a practical thing that I was using frequently until after college. I think it, you know, I remember the I was in college the first time somebody told me they'd send an email and I didn't really understand what that meant. But um, it is something that I, I've um, appreciated the value of seeing uh, the way that the world has developed. And I think now uh, as a tool, especially in this time, to see how we can use, like any tool, use it most effectively to convey things of deeper meaning and value. And I love that we have so many different generations represented here, including um, Patrick, your, uh, your kids uh, in the mix. Um, so one of the things that was one of the first topics I think I, I wanted to, to just touch on a little bit explicitly is, um, is this idea of, of digital generations and the fact that there are, um, different generations. I think many people are, are familiar with talking about kind of differences or ideas, you know, Gen X, Millennial, Gen Z, whatever a uh, younger generation is, is referred to. But I think it's, it's helpful to, to give a little bit more context to that, you know, um, in terms of the digital sense. We know the impact, uh, as it talks about here, from, you know, one generation to the next uh, how things develop and, and we can benefit both from the good that's done before and also the, the trends that are developed that aren't always maybe as, as helpful as they could be. But 
you know, like what are, what's it mean to talk about digital generations? Um, and maybe I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Christian because I know that's something that he's thought about uh, over time. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Bob. This is one of those really interesting things, things that I have found in kind of my own research and my own writing. Um, and, and one of the things that I've been involved with recently that's helped me think about this is uh, uh, an international Jesuit symposium on, um, you know, theology in a digital context and, and what does that mean? Um, and there's a whole rabbit hole of, of thought you can go down there, um, which I did with, with a Jesuit who's a dear friend of mine, Father Clancy, in another video. Um, video. Um, um, but I think one of the really interesting things here is that, is that understanding that I think you might have heard in between where Patrick and I in our introductions, um, we have very different memories of our first time um, interacting with technology, whereas I remember growing up, my family had a computer. It was dial-up, granted. Um, but uh, there's, I have memories of you know, being a high school student, being a young person, entering into an education and professional context where one of the first pieces of advice that I got from people was you have to have a LinkedIn, right? And that's now a, a super um, common, you know, versus common versus uncommon. It's a very common thing for people who are young to know that having a LinkedIn is important because it lets people find you and, and you build a network through that way. Um, and so what, what you see in those kind of touchstone experiences is that it's, it's very soft border, but two kind of categories have emerged in academic language of one being digital natives, which is, uh, I kind of represent the first cusp of that. Um, and even inside of digital natives, there's an emerging group of first generation digital natives and then later digital natives. Um, so kids who are born today obviously have a much different experience with technology than I did um, because half of my students don't even know what dial-up is. They, I will make a reference to the AOL like sound and they look at me like I'm crazy. Um, so, you know, there's, there's those experiences within that divide and that's, that's kind of a, its own interesting topic. But you have that, that digital native part and then you get into digital immigrants who are, um, and I think Patrick represents like the last the last chunk of, of digital immigrants, if you listen to some of the anecdotal research on this, in terms of saying they're the ones who developed the first usage practices of technology, and they are really the ones who are helping to, who instructed and taught people who are Gen Z and um, younger millennials in terms of how do you begin to access technology and what does this look like? So you have this, this really interesting divide. Um, and then of course, uh, when you get to the digital um, immigrant part, it kind of like, phases out into various tiers, kind of the, the further back you reach. Um, and there's, there's plenty of jokes that I think a lot of people um, can say are true when you think about, you know, the young grandkid trying to help their grandparent understand how to log into to their email. Um, but I think that that speaks to a really powerful um, sense of, uh, you know, intuitiveness in how technology comes down to. And that's kind of typically the most common way that people talk about that, that digital immigrant versus digital native divide the intuitive ability to learn how to swipe and, and navigate products um, versus kind of the command function uh, control mindset of, of working with any kind of digital, you know, framework. I, I know for me, those, that framing or distinction is one that is interesting to think about, you know, like that there are some people that are digital natives, others that are digital immigrants, uh, some that are digitally lost on their way, who knows what, but um Patrick, I'm kind of curious for you. I don't know if these are terms that you're familiar with or what, you know, what's it like to imagine yourself as a digital uh, immigrant? 
Yeah, it's funny. I still remember the first time I heard this terminology kind of in that academic world. I have a friend who very much studies it, and she talked about kind of my age group, kind of a rough window as those early digital immigrants and those kind of, you know, she called us early adapters. And I was like, I've never been an early adapter for anything. Like, I'm usually the one that holds on to my iPhone until my wife is like, my God, the battery is melting, just finally get a new one. But when she explained it a little more, it made sense where she was like, you know, so you, for example, I joined Facebook my junior year of college. So I very much remember my social life in college prior to social media. And I remember when social media just swept it up. And it was the way you kind of had everything initially early on, right? And so I kind of have that ability of recognizing, you know, life before all that stuff existed, and then also a life that became increasingly dependent on it for the ways in which we engage socially, do other things like that. And so I think it's a really interesting domain to stand in. I think, you know, as life goes on, and maybe Christian can speak to this more, I don't know the research as well, like the mantle shifts, right? Where like, we might have been those early adapters, but I'm certainly now watching some of my colleagues who are born in their mid-90s, and they definitely have much more familiarity with some of the digital resources being utilized right now, but find themselves in that same position I found myself on early in my career, where they're like, I get it, I just don't engage with it, you know? So like, Christian may have a much better understanding of why the heck TikTok is so darn popular, but is like, I'm not going to personally engage with it, right? And like, that's, I think, a very interesting thing is when we get to that stage of, okay, I still get the tech, I just no longer want to use it that way because it doesn't feel relevant to me. No, this is, this is a great point. I, uh, um, and I think it raises kind of the awareness that we can have. And I think that we want to, you know, that we're obviously in this conversation, we're reflecting on a certain context of reality about the ways that people interact. A lot of people out there in terms of the digital world, they're just in it, right? They're not necessarily, especially let's say, you know, younger generations always reflecting on, well, what's this mean? Or viewing it even as, as a generation or a tool. It's just how, how things are or their life. I want to highlight just makes me think a little bit, um, connecting it kind of with the Ignatian spirituality piece, how much, you know, St. Ignatius grew up in a time when information was uh, a key issue and also one where there was so much turmoil in the world, especially as we, you know, um, they moved into not just, you know, earlier than him, but the printing press and then the way that that played out in the spread of information, ultimately the Protestant Reformation, the ideas that were spread, how much sorting through information and being able to evaluate it uh, was a key part of the generation that he was a part. Obviously, with very different technology, but but a kind of an interesting um, parallel in some ways. Yeah, Bob, that that's really interesting. You mentioned that I, I'm going down one of those tech rabbit holes. Um, but one of the one of the language sets that I work with, and in, in my own thoughts on this, is the idea of a new axial age with with digital media and digital um, really just existence. Uh, Right, the idea that we have a curated image of the self that anyone can access at any time that we're not aware of um, changes the way that we really do interact with the world. Because, um, for example, you know, something like this video um, in the future, I'm going to have students who might look me up and they're going to find this and they're going to watch this. And, you know, I have to know that that portrays uh, a kind of a permanent image of myself that writing, mass writing portrayed of authors, you know, back in the time of Ignatius. And really the idea that we are, are entering into a new type of 
um, I don't want to say dualistic presence, but, but really the way in which we are extending ourselves into a new um, network of, I think, interrelationships with each other is really what a lot of this thought is about, because we are really trying to learn how to discern something like Patrick said with TikTok, right? Like, that's a totally new way of interacting with people socially. Um, one that I, I personally get, um, I have to say that my teenage sister helped me get over that hurdle, but she has, you know, I see the humor um, and I briefly appeared in one and then I swore to never do it again. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I certainly see that the, the way in which we are presenting ourselves and the way we're choosing to communicate um, is so rapidly evolving. Um, and, and I think that presents some really great questions and also challenges um, for anyone involved in Ignatian formation right now. Yeah, I mean, so one thing that that made me think of is, um, you know, I think one thing I was always kind of raised with going into that digital world was treat anything you write like it's a postcard that anyone can see. And I sometimes relay that point to some of my students and they're like, oh, or, you know, they come to me because we have to have a tough conversation because they put something out into the world in a very big way and then are like, and it kind of spun out of control. But a few years ago, I worked in a different part of the university. I worked with something called our community of care. So I always kind of relate it to like, we were the paramedics and the overall response to any time a student had any variety of crisis, whether it was social, emotional, mental, academic, et cetera, we're those ones that first get called in and we work to figure out what's going on with the student and connect them to the appropriate resources. And one thing that shook me, part of my job was when students kind of ended up in the worst of worst situations and they were hospitalized for mental health challenges, often against their will, part of my job was to be that first person to go and visit them and to meet with them. And this theme started to emerge and, you know, not with everyone, everyone, there was a variety of issues, but Oftentimes you'd hear some variation of, I'm just really depressed and my life isn't as good as my friends and I can see that. And we'd start to go down that rabbit hole of question and it was what they saw on social media and that they didn't have as good a life as their friends. And I found myself thinking like, but we all curate our image there. Like everyone's curating their best self, you know? Like I put adorable photos of my children. I rarely put anything where they're screaming at me and going crazy. And so, I came across this research by a woman named Jean Twinge. I think she's down at University of California, San Diego. But, you know, kind of the easy reading for anyone watching this, if you want it, is there's an Atlantic article called Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And she talks about generational differences. That's what she studies. And she says she comes across this one point in her research where she's like, the data has to be wrong. There's no way it's changed that dramatically. Reruns the data, finds it's true. And the data point was this, and it may not seem that significant just at first, but she realized that I believe it was high school seniors in 2015 were going out less unsupervised than eighth graders were in 2009. And she said, for a divide like that to happen, it normally takes 30 to 40 years. So to happen half over six years, what happened? And what she realizes is students are behind their screens. They're on their phones. They're not engaging as much in that world. And they're going back and forth. And then she also correlates a rise with some mental health challenges around the first year that the iPhone was possessed by more than like 50% of the U.S. population. And I think it's a really beautiful article in terms of as we navigate this digital divide of she didn't come out to say cell phones are the be all end all or they're absolutely horrible. She said, as we navigate this change, here's a trend we're seeing. We're seeing different mental health challenges emerge for people of this age and people older than them 
are oftentimes at a loss to really help them to navigate it because they don't understand that digital world that the student is really kind of slogging through in a different way. And so I think that's immensely important for all of us in the work we do is to kind of navigate that together with students. I think that's a great point about um, being able to enter into understand and to some extent enter into a world of somebody else, right? And that it's so characteristic of Jesuit ministry going back to the early days of going out, you know, Francis Xavier going to other cultures or, you know, the way that St. Ignatius worked with people of so many different classes and backgrounds and that ability, that advice he would often give to listen and to learn so that you can, you know, be able to relate to people, enter into their world. I think that's why this idea and talking with Christian and, and bringing you, you and Patrick is such a um, one that seemed so good because what a key thing for us as uh, people involved in, in ministry and Ignatian work to be aware of, of this reality of, of, of digital culture. Um, and to that point, then, I think let's turn a little bit explicitly to that conversation that this generation that we're working with is a generation of digital natives. And what does that um, mean? So when we think about, as you know, Christian was explaining before, this idea that there, there's a generation that are digital natives. They've grown up in a world, uh, as Christian was talking about for himself, where the computer's all, all, always been there, where this kind of online reality has always been there. Now it manifests with different, there's different benchmarks for what types of technology was available at what time and how that shapes how people interacted. Um, and so I think here, you know, we, we, you know, what are some suggestions of working with digital natives? A question that assumes that we're already uh, doing the work of trying to enter into the reality, the mindset, uh, the context of people that are digital natives. Um, so I'll just open that up for uh, whatever you might like to share on, on this and we can take, take it in different directions. For me, kind of the, the central framework that I've been working with recently and that I have found helpful, maybe not an end-all be-all, but it, it's really helpful in my guiding thoughts, is the idea of helping students transition from that mediated existence that we find in the online world to an integrated one. Um, when, I, you know, when I look at what do the people who were helped help to form me in my own spiritual formation and, and guided me into kind of a life of ministry, what what was the theme that I got from them? And just in that own self-reflection, I found that the idea of integrating everything into a whole person, a whole dynamic person and seeing myself that way, not as different compartments of, of things, or if you want to use, you know, a very contemporary one, I'm not different apps on a phone. I'm a phone in its entirety, right? And there's things that people hide on their phones and there's things that people post online on their phones. Um, lots of people have those hidden photo archives and photos now, um, for young people. And, and, you know, those, those hidden parts of the phone, um, are just as important and central to your being as the parts that you post on, on Instagram and, uh, Snapchat to your friends. And so I, I think kind of that, that idea is what I really work with with students is, is I'm saying, Hey, maybe you're presenting this part, but I know there's a lot more there. And that, and that's the part that we really got to dig into and understand that maybe you're using different apps, but it's all part of the same built-in network. Um, and that kind of mindset I have found has been really helpful for me as I pursue working with young people. 
Yeah, I love that because I think, you know, and again, I think it's fascinating that we've got the high school and the college educational worlds represented here because anytime I get that chance, I'm always like, are y'all seeing this too? Like, are you working with this too? So I'm curious, but like, I think one thing I've noticed, particularly since 2016, is we struggle so much to wrestle with complexity and we struggle to work through nuance. And like, I think this idea of like, yes, there's the hidden and the unhidden and it's all part of you is something so vital to how we approach this situation, but also just students at large. You know, like one of my favorite things when I used to live as a resident minister, it was a live-in position. And you get to see students kind of at night, maybe when they're coming back from something that they really wish a staff or faculty member that they look up to didn't see them. And you'd have these conversations the next day where I'm like, you're human, but you know, like, yeah, let's talk about some better decision-making, but overall, this doesn't diminish my love for you at all. And the opposite, it strengthens it because I see the complexity of who you are and my imperfection reaches out to your imperfection and there's holiness there, you know? So I think like, that's such a vital, vital thing. I think the other thing when we're just speaking about this generally is if we're going to work across a digital divide, it's recognizing that each side has something to learn from the other. So I think a lot of times we can get really stuck into we are the educators, we know this, et cetera. And especially around the digital stuff, I think it helps us take a step back and see our students also in the position of educators and be willing to sit with them and maybe learn certain things from them while challenging them in other areas. And we grow together through that educational experience. You know, that photo that we had up was like of a few students at LMU. And it was of a time when I left my computer out on the main desk, went to go talk to someone and they thought they were hilarious and took like, you know, a selfie and made it my screen background. I was like, I love this, you know, cause it was kind of this like bridging the digital divide and having to be comfortable with laughing at myself of like, oh, I kind of set myself up for that when I left my computer unguarded around a few students who I was like joking around with. So I think that complexity is such an important piece of how we go through this. Yeah, Patrick, I, I really love that. Um, one, of the, one of the texts that I've been working with recently, it's called, uh, I believe it's To Know As We Are Known. Um, uh, the author's name is escaping me, but it's a really great, it's a short read. It's like a hundred and something pages. Um, it's a really great book and it, it was written, uh, I want to say in the late eighties. Um, and it, it proposes a framework of education that really relies on educators being willing to acknowledge that we have to learn from our students. Um, and I think that, that what you're talking about, and I found that really helpful for me is that, um, yeah, I just have to be willing not just to listen, but to try and embody myself and, and understand through some of those Ignatian practices. Um, for me, when a student, you know, describes a really painful experience happening um, with someone they're dating through a social media app, you know, they said, hey, I got, I got blocked on my DMs on Instagram, um, and there's, they're in tears about that. Um, to me, that's one of those areas where I'm like, my initial reaction is like, eh, like it's not it's not that bad, but I have to really like try and pause and and really dig into that imaginative space of being like, well, wait a minute, there's something of value here that is a physical manifestation of connection for for these students, and that that sense of learning I I think you know is important for us as educators is to understand that 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 boundary of uh, relationship dialogue really does bleed through those mediums in a way that is that is different for us. In the same way as us saying, hey, that there's, and I, I think the thing that educators have to offer, you know, to be, to be fair to our experience as well, is saying, 
you know, maybe we have some life skills that can help you separate out those moments, right? Like there's a level of depth to communication in, you know, face-to-face -face reality that you might not be capturing in the phone. And there might be some, some crossed wires there in between that. And, and maybe trying to build on the face-to-face -face contact can help you with some of the problems you're experiencing in that, in that digital navigation. And so I think for me, at least that's, that's one of those areas that I find kind of this, this dynamic that Patrick was talking about at work really a lot of the time. I mean, isn't that cool to think of like imaginative prayer, right? Something that I think our students sometimes are like, what? Like you're telling me to do this with the Bible and to kind of translate it and say, that can also be used with us and how we engage with one another and, you know, kind of doing that. I think too of like, you know, I wouldn't say I see this as a trend yet, but one thing I've seen more and more from some of the students I work with is that they're actually kind of finding a way to regulate the balance between digital and non-digital in ways that their peers just a few years prior were not doing. So I've got more about trying to be in spaces and making rules when they're with their friends of like, hey, when we're together, our phones go on the table and no one grabs them because we're here together. And like, you know, the CASA model of education and all of that stuff, like that was really big, this kind of social justice education. I think we're seeing that more and more. And I think of like, I don't know if you guys listen to the podcast on Dean with Krista Tippett, but um, she had the founder of Wired Magazine on a couple of years ago. And he made some line where he said, you know, when it comes to technology, I wish we were more like the Amish. And she laughed. And he's like, I know it sounds like the setup to a bad joke, but it's really not. And she said, the Amish aren't anti-tech. What they are is they ask questions of how will this technology benefit my family and how will it benefit my community? And so they bring a technology into the space and if it benefits, they keep it. And if it doesn't, it gets out. So they talk about like, the horse-drawn carriage and what that's like because, you know, it allowed you to stay local and shop within your local economy, which mattered to them. And so I'm seeing more students kind of wrestle with that and say, hmm, this is important, which I think is cool. No, I, I mean, I think that's, um, it's a great point. I often think about, um, like, let's say discernment, for example, and we live in an age where there's just so much information that in, uh, many cases, it, discernment's an even more important skill. The ability to separate and to distinguish things, to sift, uh, is, becomes more important, right? And I think to tie back to what both of you were saying, that how much we often uh, are used to thinking about, um, you know, not presenting our whole self. It's often something that becomes unreflective for people that, uh, with, you know, are digital natives. It's just you just learn how to present a certain kind of image. And uh, we have all generations represented, I see. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like it was a bad setup prop, but it actually just happened. I just quietly texted my wife and was like, if you're able to get our son, it would be great. I'm doing a podcast interview right now. <laughs> you want to say hi? There you go. There's your cameo. Okay, <laughs> we'll keep doing it. Patrick, I, or not Pat, I think Christian, you'd added in an image uh, as well. Do you, uh, I, I did, I did. I think Patrick might find that funny. That, <laughs> that is, that is something that's I came awesome. across, something that's something I came across recently that made me laugh, um, uh, which, which I think is a moment of, I don't know if a kindergartner would live tweet, um, but it encapsulate moments that have happened where and the only reason I thought this was funny is I have, I've had a student live stream one of my lectures um, to one of my other students that was absent. 
and uh, and I emailed the student, <laughs> hey, do you need notes? And he said, no, somebody live streamed it on their phone and, and they'd asked me, hey, can I record the lecture? And I, and I thought they would audio record it. Um, I, I don't sound like a digital native at the moment, I realize, but I, it like, I thought about, it, I'm like, oh, I'm like things that, it was one of those realizations that I'm like, hey, things that happened in the classroom um, could very easily like escape out into the world. Um, but that was, you know, my, my idea for sharing that is that uh, it sometimes I think that encapsulates that divide we've been talking about really well between where their parents are and, and where the students are. Uh, and, and I think in our, in our work too, uh, both high school and college, um, a lot of the things we do is help students navigate that divide they feel with their parents in, in the ways that they communicate, I think, through some of these mediums as well is a, is a challenge that I definitely come across a lot of the time. Though I was going to say, it's so interesting to me that like this time we're in, right? So all of us are speaking right now during COVID-19. That's my four-year-old making a cameo in our interview. But like, I don't know how many times I've heard some variation of someone needed to do something with technology who kind of comes from an older generation. And it was their kid who's now at home who was able to help make that possible. And so it's like that learning back and forth of there's something that a younger generation needs to learn from other people about like, here's how to sit in silence. Here's how to kind of be disconnected from tech at a time when like, we're not able to be out in the ways we normally would. And like technology is both a lifeline and a curse. Like, I don't know if you all feel this, but on the days when I'm on zoom nonstop, like I'm exhausted at the end, you know, I've got a headache. I'm exhausted from trying to watch 20 little bubbles and how they responded on stuff. And yet at the same time, it's such a lifeline to us. And it's the only way we're able to really kind of communicate with folks outside our house or outside of who we run into on a walk or at the grocery store. And it's younger people who are helping us kind of bridge that gap creatively and finding ways to make tech come alive and like really be more powerful than it is limiting in different spaces. And I think that's so hopeful as we all also deeply yearn to just be back in person with one another again. Well, that's a great, that's a great point and a great transition, I think, to the, what we're, you know, I want to move us to here just to talk about a hope-filled future, right? That this context that we're in, uh, the digital reality, uh, shows both the uh, opportunity and challenges in that, uh, creating that hope-filled future. So just, you were saying, Patrick, that like the interactions we're having now, you know, we often hear that you know the the youth or the or the future, and we you know there's that kind of can be a generic sense of that truism, and yet right now we really have that experience, right? The shaping that's happening, the education of different generations uh, together, you're you're seeing what's possible, and in some ways already seeing seeing the future that's developing as you're with you know children or working with younger uh, students and, and others. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. What, what, what does it mean to have a hope-filled future? You know, take, we're taking that term from the, the Je international Jesuits, which pose that as a preference, as a call. Um, but it, it's, it's a very laden term in a sense, or it's open to a lot of interpretations. So let's just take a, take a minute to, to think about what um, what's it mean to have a hope-filled future? And, you know, to what extent can we shape the future? What does it mean to be hope-filled? Just a few prompts there for, for our uh, conversation. 
Yeah, I can take a stab first. Um, you know, we all think from where our feet are planted. So I think when I think about hope, I think about it through that lens as the director of the Center for Service and Action at LMU, through a lens where we're engaging students in service justice and advocacy work. And I know this is something that Jesse and I over at Loyola have spoken about pretty frequently. But to me, I forgot where I heard it said, but it was this idea that hope is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word. And I think there's a difference between hope and optimism, even though they get used interchangeably a lot of times. I think optimism is very passive and is very like, oh, everything will just work out for the best. And I believe that. Whereas I think hope is active, you know, that it's all of us saying, I'm going to ground myself in hope and I'm going to be an agent of hope. Like that's a term I love to use more and more of like, let's be agents of hope, you know? And like, again, in this current COVID-19 context, it's not a question of if we're going to get through this, but how. And one thing I've started doing is creating a journal and I haven't journaled in years, but a friend reminded me like it will help hold you accountable day by day because years from now, when I look back on that journal, who will I have been? How will I have been that person that leaned into generosity with my neighbors that reached out to support my students, even when I was exhausted, or will I have been that person that kind of cowered in fear in the corner of my room? And I think being hope filled is active. You know, and I think a lot of times it gets put out there as kind of like a cute passive thing. And to me, it's like, no, like we stand with our students that are DACA recipients or in mixed status families as it pertains to immigration, because we have a hope for a better future. And we're not just going to stand by and wait for it. We're going to be part of trying to create that, even though we know sometimes the odds feel lined up against us. So that's kind of, I guess, one thought that kind of sparked when I read those questions was like, let's be agents of hope. Yeah, I, I really think that's great, Patrick. And it, it brings for me this this idea that um, I think technology is so powerful and the digital, I mean, I really think of the digital horizon being powerful for all of these agents, agents of hope, really the kids that, that I'm teaching and, and people my own age and, and every everyone who's exposed to it is that we finally have context on a lot of things that so many people haven't understood before, right? Um, and I'm trying to remember why I heard this quote, and it's, it is escaping me, right? But it's the idea that sometimes before we can, before we can craft that vision of the hope, um, we really have to see all of the, the pain and the hurt in our world brought to the forefront for us. And I think what, what at least I've experienced in my own lifetime is that technology has brought the stories of people that were never encapsulated and and seen before in a meaningful way and it's presenting people's stories and people's ideas and people's really truths and their their own really diverse ideas of hope in their own voices um you know i i think of um black lives matter as controversial as it might be for a lot of people we're seeing these really just powerful ripping stories from people and it's not being told on the evening news broadcast. Um, you know, I, I think of people like my grandparents who I happen to be helping out during this right now. They still watch the evening news broadcast and that's, that's where they get their information. And I think of, I'm like, I'm like, that's a really powerful filter and it's being told them through someone else. Instead, I think of a young person and they're, um, you know, live streaming some of the abuses that happen in our society and they're seeing firsthand what's happening and there's not, a filter there. It's exposing things that are going on and really inspiring newer and more dramatic visions of hope because we're hearing people 
in their own truth and in their own context. And I think that's a really powerful thing for, for the reality of a hope-filled future. And, and that's something that gives me a lot of, not optimism, Patrick, that you were talking about, but hope. I feel empowered to help young people develop new, new ways of contextualizing and breaking apart their experiences in an integrated fashion because their truths can be so powerful with the tools at their disposal. Great uh, yeah. example. You know, I think it makes me think a little bit about just the dynamic of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, which is grounded first in, you know, the God's love and how we're loved, but then a recognition of the brokenness in our world and in our own lives so we can move forward as companions of Jesus into creating a better world, right? And there's something about grounding in the reality of brokenness that's so critical to a real hope, a true hope that really is imagining, imagining a different world. Yeah, I mean, I think of that, you know, Peter Hans Kolbenbach, the former superior general of the Jesuits, gave an address at Santa Clara either in 2000 or 2001. And for those of us that have ever worked in the space of immersions, it's just vital where he's got this line of, you know, when the heart is touched by direct experience, the mind may be challenged to change. And that's kind of like the punchline that gets out there, but he goes a little deeper and talks about like students have to let the gritty reality of the world into their hearts and their minds so they can learn to feel it and then think about it and respond to it critically. And I think like everything Christian just kind of laid out, it was like, yeah, you know, it's Kolvenbach. It's finding that way of like, we have to not just shield ourselves from that, but like letting the gritty reality in then gives us a sense of like, here are the stories that don't make it. You know, I'm in my first year of my doctoral program and we were going through our quantitative and qualitative data courses. And I told a professor at the end, I said, I gotta confess, like. I feel more comfortable doing qualitative research, but I have a bias toward quantitative. Like, even though I'm not good at numbers, numbers are impressive to me. And she's like, you're in a program that's education for social justice. Qualitative data matters more than any other space in a program like this, because if you're doing justice work, presumably you're gonna be working with communities that are often marginalized in academia. And qualitative data is a chance to allow people to bring their own voices into your dissertation, into your research, and not just have you designing study questions and interpreting it, but saying, here's what this person said about their lived reality. And you're then taking that and amplifying that message rather than trying to translate it. And I was like, okay, I just became a qualitative data fan on that. So, <laughs> you know, what Christian said just totally resonated with me right now. Where I was like, yes, like all of that is hope-filled. Well, I think that uh, touches on a little bit is we're trying to, to mediate or talk about, you know, both the universal experience that we're, we're, we have as a, as a society or as a generation and the individual, right, and how we kind of intersect in those two. Um, there's an additional question. I'm not sure. Did, Christian, did you add the... Uh... I did. I did add the default question. And I, I think we have touched on this, but I think it's also really helpful for the idea of a hope-filled future of um, really can the default experience of the digital horizon provide an adequate model of living a lifestyle in line with the values of care personalis. And then there's, again, there's the, there's the divide joke um, is the, the student saying, there's no icons on the chalkboard. How do I, how do I click through this? Doesn't know what to do. Um, and, and I think it raises that question now, right? Like we, um, 
we have kind of broken out like we are seeing all this diversity in the world and what I, I think it's asking the question does does the digital world that's presented to us now contain default things that can help us create a hope-filled future or what are the steps that we need to take and implement into you know what kind of new settings or new apps do we have to create you know using that using that framework in order to help get us to a hope-filled future what you know what what's missing um or what's there that maybe we're not creatively reimagining in our own framework already yeah i love that because i think like there's such a need for kind of both right like i'm sure in campus ministry you know you all maybe talk different times of like we meet students where they're at and like it's my job as the minister to really be the one to figure out how to do that. It's not the student's job to figure out how to conform to my expectations. I need to recognize that in a room of 10 students, each of them are at varying levels of their own faith and spirituality life. And my job is to be flexible and humble enough to try and engage each of them in that space. And I think you can make a transfer of that to the digital world and say like, it's really taking ministry and applying care of personalis to ministry in a digital way that makes all of what we're talking here about a hope-filled digital world possible. And then I think the other part is like, we're recognizing the value of the analog world and that's also good, you know? So when LMU got shut down, those first couple of weeks were a swirl to get thousands of students moved home and transfer classes online. I'm sure everyone has some variation of that experience that we'll all reflect on later. And I was talking with my team and there was this pressure to do like virtual programming right away. And I was like, we're not gonna virtually program. We just need to call people. Like everyone's lives are disrupted and they've gotten an email from their bank, an email from their internet provider, 25 emails from the university. Everyone's getting emails about all this stuff. And it really kind of came through for me when I reached out to the first student that I work with and just called and said, how are you? You know, and she just broke down crying. And we talked for a while and she, when we were wrapping up, she said, I thought I was doing okay. And I didn't realize how much hurt and pain I'm experiencing until I heard your voice. Because when I heard your voice, she's like, I don't think you even realized this is when I should be on shift at work. She worked for us. And she said, I should be in the office right now with you talking about stupid mundane things. And instead we're here. And it meant a lot that you called. And so I think like, you know, we then started an initiative where we're now calling every student in the university and we're calling it Cura Calls because it's Cura Personalis and trying to kind of say, let's step out of the digital just for a moment and meet people in that analog space. But we're going to ultimately have to get really good at the digital, especially as we wait for what our new normal is going to look like and imagining some hybrid form. So that question, I think, is like the question we should all be wrestling with is what is Cura Personalis? in this default digital world we now find ourselves in. I've been thinking a lot about just the ways that conversation, spiritual conversation, meaningful conversation is part of the real tradition of Ignatian spirituality, Ignatian education, and, and how that's been such a nourishment for me, just being able to continue to have conversations like this, right? Where we're, um, I think there's a truth to the experience of um, being able to reflect with others on an idea that's significant in our lives for a period of time that is important in whatever platform it happens in. 
And I think that finding those ways for that, for the conversation and connection to be meaningful. I love what you're saying, Patrick, too, because I think there is that, that personal touch and the openness just to listen, which is such a key part of any real conversation, right? Where we're really just partly creating the space to hear how that other person is doing. So yeah, such an important question to think about at this time. You know, Patrick, I, I think about your example of the journal in my answer to this question. Um, a lot of our classes at Loyola have gone into Zoom meetings for the course. Um, and I did a pulse check on my students right when we, about a week, eh, maybe, maybe two or three weeks into when we first shifted at Loyola out of in-person meetings. And the feedback I've continued to receive all the way through is that, you know, they're saying we're zoomed out, we're done, like, you know, and so my course has shifted almost entirely to them writing short reflection papers. And I have gotten really great student feedback because I have kind of become a place for them to keep a record of processing their experience through the exam at least once a week, right? And so that that analog space for them, it's done through a keyboard. So, but the analog act of writing out and, you know, creating that record for them to keep for themselves has been something that they have really valued. And that, that surprised me that that was the preferred, you know, preference they gave me for the course. And cause I, I figured they would want to do social interaction through zoom and, and things like that. Um, but for me, that's kind of how I, that started, that has, then what started for me that's kind of reflected on this question is, wow, you know, reflection papers and um, silent prayer time, even if it's for five minutes, has been a powerful reflective tool for these kids who are always on technology. Um, and, and for me, I've kind of been thinking about, you know, what does that mean and what does that look like and, and how I want to continue my own ministry after, after this is over and through the duration of this and how do I, how do I best help those who I'm tasked with, with walking with every day. No, that's a great point, Christian. Um, it's so many, I think, to be reflective and to examine where we're at and what, what we're invited to do. It's the heart of discernment, right? To be able to really be open to listen and to respond to the input that we're getting, which can come from student voices, which can come from so many other places, and not just kind of our own ideas, but really listening so that we can hear how the Spirit's moving. Coming to the end of our, our time together, I just wanted to see if there's any last comments or reflections you wanted to add. I just love to like double down on Christian's point earlier. I mean, that analogy of the cell phone and the apps, like I just think that's such a beautiful fitting analogy for the time we are in. And like, you know, we've kind of talked about service in our office and told students very early on, like, should you have that privilege to socially distance that is what kinship asks of you in this moment. And that feels weird, but it's important. And we've kind of transitioned more to like, how are we curious about ourselves during this time? How are we diving deep into ourselves? How are we diving deep into some of the societal breakdowns we're seeing? So asking why disproportionately it's black and brown communities that are really burdening this virus and asking other questions like systematic are really important, but then also like, how are we curious about the people in our homes? You know, the people we're cooped up with, you know, we all say we care about doing service and justice work. Well, let's start in our own home. You know, I always find at LMU, we could so easily look at the ministry going on at Homeboy and say, of course, every person's better than their worst mistake. And yet when challenges arise in our own community, we're ready to like take that person and permanently ban them. And I'm like, but aren't they too better than their worst mistake? And aren't we challenged to do that? And so I think, 
Christian's analogy just does that of human beings are complex and there's the hidden and unhidden apps and photos and everything else. And like, how do we get ourselves to really kind of have the fullness of our phone greeting the fullness of that other phone in this digital and human age? So I just really appreciated that, Christian. It was beautiful and it's going to hang with me for a while. Well, that that was great because it was ad lib. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that shows the digital native in my brain that that's my, my default processing. Um, you know, my, I come back to a story I heard when I was in high school uh, through an organization called Q O'Brien Youth Leadership. Patrick and Bob, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, they do some really great leadership formation stuff. Um, you know, the, the foundational story with that is the actor Hugh O'Brien goes to visit Albert Schweitzer um, in his work in Africa uh, as a medical doctor. And he's there for, you know, a, a period of about a week. Um, I think it's 10 days. And, you know, the, the quote that Hugh comes to in his own personal memoirs when he founds an organization on youth leadership is, you know, Dr. Schweitzer holds his hand, looks at him in the eye and says, this is great that you've been here, but what are you going to do with this? Um, and for me, I've really been trying to, I think, impress on my students and, and not only my students, but myself and those I work with and saying we've had even with coronavirus, a time of retreat, a time of reflection and, and, and silence. And I really think we have to ask that question, Patrick, as, as you talked about, like, we're seeing all, we're seeing this rally that black and brown people are dying more from COVID-19 and we're, we're seeing some really painful truths come out. I think we really have to ask the question, once this social distancing and, and a reemergence of society happens is what are we gonna do with all of this? Um, because our answer can't be nothing. Well, so true. The invitation that we, we have at this time is not, as both of you have said, to be passive. Although we're kind of uh, isolated often in many, many cases, we're still invited into deep reflection. Deep reflection on, on the challenges and brokenness of our world, as St. Ignatius uh, definitely would call us to, and also to an honest appraisal of all the parts of ourselves, right? Uh, the hidden apps and uh, other things, but that we're, we're the whole phone. Uh, we're everything that we carry with us. And that in this time, part of what we're invited to in all the work that we do is to, in our own lives and for those the, uh, students that we work with, to help find that integration, to help find those insights in those images that, that help us to kind of come together. Not so that we can be perfect, because we never are, but so that we might be fully uh, available in kinship with others, most authentically, as St. Ignatius wants us to be, who God has called us to be. Thank you both for, uh, for being with me. I think that um, was a great, I know I was uh, nourished by this conversation and by that call, that reminder that in this complex digital world, we are all part of building this, this hopeful future. So, Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.